All right, guys, last week in the book of Amos. So if you want to flip to Amos 9, I'm going to unpack in a second what sort of the logic of the text is, but kind of crazy that we're coming to the end of this book already. This is also my last time preaching for a while. Uh, We're about to have, God willing, our second kiddo next week. So I'm going to take some time off and just, yeah, go be a dad. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I'm excited. Well, yeah, yeah, cool. Thanks, Austin. Um, But yeah, I'm excited to get a little time off. I'll miss you guys, but I'll I'll be back at some point. Um, Yeah, so I... uh, Yeah, we're starting at the beginning of chapter 9, and guess what the beginning of chapter 9 is about? Judgment, okay? No surprise if you've been with us through the book of Amos, but today it's going to take a turn. Okay, throughout the book, it's felt like, okay, heavy, heavy, and it's good, and it's convicting, but you're sort of waiting for, is there ever going to be hope in this book? And the answer is, it comes in Amos 9, there's that transition where today, after we talk about judgment for a little bit, we're going to talk about hope in heaven. And you know what? I just felt like God threw us a bone this week. Like, it made sense that we were wearing masks during Amos. But now as we got to Amos 9, the mask thing lifts, Amos lifts a little bit, and it just, it feels good. We feel freed up a little bit. Guys, I, I'm excited to be with you. Look, whether you're, you're rocking a mask, whether you're not, you're welcome in our church. We're, we're grateful that you're here, but uh, we're excited to get to this turning point in the book of Amos. So here's how this breaks down. It's actually a very simple breakdown of the chapter. Uh, the first part is verses 1 through 7, and that is the section on judgment. He's, he's wrapping up the themes that he's been unpacking throughout the book, but then there's this transition in 8 through 10 uh, where he begins to talk about the, the remnant. And, and he's, he's using this language like Israel is being shaken, and, and no one will avoid that shaking, but some people will fall out of the shaking into judgment, but others who humble themselves will be caught as a remnant of God held in his hand. And so we'll talk about the distinction between those two types of people. That's kind of the transition in verses 8 through 10. And then part 2 is 11 through 15, where he's talking about the redeemed people of God. So that's where we're going. Let's start with part 1 about judgment. Look at verse 1. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, And he said, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. So Amos is likely in the temple at Bethel. And he has this this vision from God that that might remind you of the vision that Isaiah has in Isaiah 6, where he says, I saw the Lord seated on his throne. But here, Amos says, I see the Lord. But instead of sitting, he's standing, sort of presiding over something. And where is he standing? He's standing next to the altar. And so the picture is that God himself is standing next to the altar as his people worship. But remember what this worship is like. It's, it's hypocritical, false worship. It's fake religion that doesn't match up with their lives. And so God is standing next to the altar, and he's looking out over this hypocritical worship that makes him so angry. And it's really a terrifying scene. And this is what he says, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake. 
So the capitals are the decorative tops of the pillars that held up the roof of the temple. So this is what this vision is saying, is that God is about to destroy his own temple while his people are worshiping in it. He's going to judge his people through the literal destruction of the temple, but that theoretically symbolizes, or that, excuse me, that is symbolic of the overall judgment that is coming on the people of God for their sins. So traditionally, in the Old Testament, what you see is, is God fights for his people. He does that literally. He actually fights battles for them, and those battles demonstrate that God, Yahweh, is, is sided with the people of Israel, and he's fighting for them against their enemies. But the book of Amos plays on this theme, but switches it. It talks about God, the Lord of hosts, the God of angelic armies, but he's no longer fighting on behalf of his people. He's fighting against his people because they've chosen to become his enemies. And God fights evil. He fights with his enemies to produce good. And the people of Israel have aligned themselves with what's evil and not with what's good. And so now they are his enemies. And so specifically, who are the people that God is fighting against? He clarifies that in verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me, if you would. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. They shall receive judgment. Who is it that receives judgment? Those who say, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. So the people that are coming under judgment are the people who tend to minimize judgment. They're the people who assume that they're fine and that they won't come under judgment, maybe because of their religiosity. Do you tend to think that because you prayed a prayer a long time ago in your life that you'll be fine, or because you go to church, or because you go to connection group that you'll be fine, or because you're a decent person that that must mean you're a Christian and you'll be fine? Do you tend to minimize the judgment of God? Or maybe you tend to minimize it a little bit differently. Maybe, maybe you're trying to explain away the judgment of God. So when you come across texts in the Bible that really fit with your view of the world or our culture's view of the world, maybe about God's loving compassion and his kindness towards uh, strangers, you really love that stuff. But when you come across Difficult texts like this in Amos, you tend to minimize it or not really go there, not really want to talk about the Old Testament because that's just kind of an Old Testament angry God. Or do you conveniently um, disagree with God on the truths in Scripture that, that disagree with our culture, current cultural viewpoint of morality and just kind of say, well, there's different interpretations for those things and you tend to minimize his judgment? Well, minimizing his judgment won't work because the people that minimize his judgment are the exact ones who receive it because it's proud. It, it's, it's pride to reject what God said is true. It's pride to assume that you can get away with sin and that it's not really that bad. And God opposes the proud. And this is what he's saying I think in this text, he's alluding to it, but I think throughout the book of Amos, what he's been saying is that those who are proud and minimizing the judgment of God are fighting with God. And you do not want to pick a fight with God. Amos is going to unpack why 
Uh, and so let's look into that. I'm going to summarize this with a couple sort of bigger theological words. So the first one, the first reason you don't want to pick a fight with God is because, it's, because of his omnipresence. Look at verse 2 and 3. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. Do you see what he's doing? He's going to the farthest stretches that a human being can realistically imagine. And he's saying, God is still there. If you dig down into Sheol, into the underworld, if you dig down to the core of the earth, God is there. If you go up to the, to the heavens, God is there. If you're standing on top of a mountain, God is there. If you're in the depths of the oceans, God is there. Guys, we don't even know what's in the depths of the ocean. The ocean deep is crazy. There's like dinosaurs down there, like glowing dinosaurs. And God, God is down there. You, you can't escape from his presence. So we recently transitioned my son Graham from a crib to a toddler bed. And so we've got like a monitor set up on him to make sure that he doesn't get out of the bed at night. And so we coached him up on this, right? Hey, you need to not get out of the bed. So the first night he was sitting there on the edge of the bed, kind of looking down. And he sort of was dangling his foot and I'm watching this whole thing, right? So I'm just waiting for it. So he's dangling his foot over the edge. And then the second his toe touched the ground, my monitor, you can talk through it. So I just turn it on, I'm like, Graham, get back in bed. And he kind of, oh, oh, you know, he's kind of looking around, like, God, like, what, what, where did you, uh, so, so Graham now thinks that I can see him anywhere all the time, and so he hasn't tried to get out of bed again. Uh, look, you, uh, you can't hide from God. He sees everything, not just what you do. He sees your motivations. He sees your intentions. He sees your actions. You can't hide from him. And you might say, well, I don't hide from him. Well, have you ever sinned and not really brought that in repentant faith back to God because you feel ashamed? Aren't you hiding from him? You sinned in his presence. He was there when it happened. He knows about it. You can't keep that from him. Second reason you don't want to fight with God is because of his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness. Verse 5 says God touches the earth and it melts. You're dangling over eternity on a string. God is holding it in his fingers. You're, you're only alive because he desires for you to be alive in this moment. You're only breathing because he gave you that breath. God upholds everything in the universe. So God is all-seeing, he's all-powerful, and we have chosen to fight with him in pride. Amos is trying to get you to this place, get all of us to this place where we are in utter desperation and are experiencing the hopelessness of this reality that judgment is coming for all of us and that there, you can't minimize it because those are the people that experience it. You can't run from it because there's nowhere to go. And we have to get to this place where we just recognize that we deserve it. It's coming at us and there's nothing that we can do about it. And that is the exact moment that he introduces this transition into hope. Look at verse eight. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom. And I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. 
It's one of the first times in this whole book that there's that moment of like, okay, there's judgment, there's judgment, but maybe there's some hope. God will keep for himself a remnant of his people. Not everyone will be utterly destroyed by God's justice. How can that be possible? Because we just talked about how there's no way out from underneath of justice. So how can God save a portion of his people from the inevitable judgment that is coming towards them? How will this remnant survive? Well, that gets us into the second part of this text about the hope of the redeemed people. Look at verse 11. This is how God will save a people from judgment. In that day, I will raise up the booth. That word booth means shelter, temporary tent, or it's very similar to tabernacle. So think house. I will raise up the house of David that is falling, fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. So do you see what he's doing here? He's using temple language. So Amos 9 started with God prophesying that he would destroy the temple on his people's heads And God eventually would send them into exile and the temple would be destroyed. But here he's saying there's hope that that temple will be rebuilt. And not only will it be rebuilt, but it will be rebuilt as in the days of old, as in the old glory days of Israel, when God was with his people and he was their God and and they were his people. It will be like that again. And it goes on in verse 12 to explain what type of temple this will be. Or, or, or it'll say this temple will be a little bit different than temples of the past. Look at verse 12. So that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. So in this new temple that's being built by God, it's not just for Israel, but it's for all the nations. He expands the scope of the ability for the people of God to to worship him or the opportunity for people to enter into the people of God from just the Israelites to all nations. All the nations will come into this new temple to worship God in his holiness. That is a prophecy about what is to come. So here's the question. When did this prophecy get fulfilled? When did it come about? When was this new amazing temple where all the nations came in to worship God? When was it built? So there was a temple that was rebuilt. So after Amos predicted this, the the people of God, the Israelites, went into exile, into a foreign land, and they did eventually come back to Israel, and they did eventually rebuild a temple. However, it was nothing like what they expected, and it wasn't the goodness that they were anticipating like Amos was writing about here. In fact, in Ezra, it said that as they were building the temple, the elders of the people who had seen the glory of the former temple were weeping over the foundations of this new temple because it was so inadequate and so much not like it was in the glory days of Israel. And not all of the Israelites returned, and it didn't become a focal point of worship for the people of God. So when was this prophecy fulfilled? Well, I think the key is where it says the booth or house of David. 
Why do the gospel writers go to so much work to demonstrate that Jesus is from the line of David, the heritage of David? It's because they're showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy and so many other prophecies scattered throughout the Old Testament. And what does John 1 say about Jesus? That he was the word that came and dwelt among us. That word dwell means tabernacle. Jesus came and tabernacled among us. He started to build the house of God among us. And what did Jesus say when he saw the temple in Jerusalem? He said, tear this temple down and I will rise it in three days. Why? Because he was talking about his own body that would be crucified and risen from the dead in three days because he was saying that he is the new temple of God. This prophecy is pointing forward to Jesus as the new temple of God. And in Jesus, humanity will, have its, uh, will be repaired like it was prophesied. Religion will be raised up from the ruins in him. And humanity will live like the days of old before they were caught up in sin and before they were cursed. There's this new world that is coming in Jesus. And there's this incredible reality that Amos wrote this prophecy and we actually know more about it than he did. So when Amos was writing this, he knew that there was this hope of this this coming ruler who was going to reestablish Jerusalem, but he had no idea the beauty of what was being written through his own pen by the Holy Spirit. But what we know now is that Jesus was God himself who came as ruler to reestablish relationship between humanity and God, and he is the temple. The temple was the dwelling place where heaven and earth met, where man could worship God again, and Jesus now is the focal point of worship for all humanity. He's bringing heaven back to earth in him. So verse 11 was pointing ahead to Christ. Verses 13 and 15 is pointing even further ahead. I want you to look at that with me. Verse 13 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of the grapes, him who sows the seed, and the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. The plowman shall overtake the reaper. In other words, there's so much goodness to be harvested in this day that you can't even pick all of it before it's time to plant again. I love the way the NLT says this. It says that the grain and grapes shall grow faster than they can be harvested and the terraced vineyards on the hills of Israel shall, shall drip with sweet wine. It's so good. It's so Beautiful. So I want to ask the question again, when did this happen? When there was so much goodness for the people of God that it was like all of creation was dripping with the goodness of God? The answer is, we've seen this, little foretaste of this, but we have never seen this fulfilled because it's a prophecy of the kingdom of Jesus in heaven. It's a prophecy of home. And so because this hasn't been totally fulfilled yet, it means that we get to anticipate the fulfillment of this promise alongside of the people who initially heard Amos. See, he's using in that text this this poetic language 
where it's, where it's physical imagery of grain and grapes and, and harvesting and vineyards, but he's essentially giving them a picture of the best possible life that they could imagine, where they're living in their own land and they're harvesting their own crops and they're flourishing and everything in life is good. And he's saying, I want you to imagine that, but then I want you to take it even a little bit further. It's not just that you're harvesting, but that the hills are dripping with sweet wine. And wine is a symbol throughout all of scripture of the new covenant, of the goodness of God, of the beauty of enjoying Jesus. Heaven is, is imaged as a feast throughout all of scripture. And so he's taking their physical imagery and he's saying it's even better than that. And I think what he's saying is when, the, when he's talking about the hills dripping with wine, he's saying creation itself will be overflowing with the goodness of God. That, that the physical reality of creation, the hills and the mountains and the trees will be dripping with the beauty of God, unlike anything we have ever seen. And he's pointing us forward to that day. And all throughout scripture, there's this imagery of gardens and being returned to gardens. So a lot of commentators point out how uh, in Genesis, when it's talking about the Garden of Eden, it's kind of this both garden and temple language. Because they're in this garden which symbolizes the abundance of God's goodness to humanity but they're also in the presence of God the way you would be in a temple. And then commentators have noted how Revelation 21, when it's giving us this picture of the new heavenly city coming down to earth, is the same thing. It's a garden temple where we live in this beautiful world that is just dripping with the presence of God and you don't need a physical temple anymore because the world itself is the temple of God. The world itself is the place for God to be enjoyed and worshipped. And so I think Amos here is pointing with his language to that day when God will make all of creation again into his temple for him to be worshiped and enjoyed and he'll invite all his people who want to come into that new temple. And so what is that place? What is heaven? What is the kingdom of God like well, I want to give a few things that I think we see in verses 13 through 15. First, in verse 13, heaven will be a place of lavish abundance. I think that's, again, the imagery of the hills dripping. I, I think here's the idea he's trying to communicate. It's like the grapes are on the vine so long that they're literally bursting out goodness, and it's just dripping all over creation. There's so much abundance that you can't even harvest all of it. I think in this poetic imagery, what he's saying is on that day, God's goodness will be so abundant and rich that we won't even be able to consume all of it. We won't be able to harvest it. We won't be able to get to the bottoms of it. It'll be just all over creation and we will never long for anything more because we'll have the fullness of who God is is. Now, one question in the context of Amos is, haven't we been talking about the dangers of lavish abundance? Do you remember that? He's using wine here as the symbolism of like feasting and enjoying God, but he's used wine differently throughout the book of Amos, where he's been calling down judgment on people who are living these self-indulgent lives. They're like drinking wine out of bowls, and they're just living entirely for themselves. So so what's happening here? Why has that been called out in the past and why is it okay in this context? 
Well, I think one reason is, is because inevitably on this earth, when you pursue this self-indulgent life, when you pursue sort of abundance, it will inevitably create poverty and injustice for someone else. But in heaven, in the kingdom of God, there is no such thing as injustice. Injustice is a foreign concept, and even if you could desire injustice on that day, which you actually won't be able to, but even if you could desire injustice on that day, you would not be able to create it because it would go against the very fabric of creation in that place. It will be impossible to create injustice because it will be a place of perfect justice where God reigns. I think a second reason why he was pushing back against self-indulgence on this earth is because your, your desires, all of our desires in it are inevitably corrupted. They're, they're wicked. And so if you pursue your desires to the full, it will end up with you replacing God with that thing that you're desiring. But get this, in heaven, your desires, if you are in Christ, your desires will be perfectly holy. Which means that you could chase every desire you have to the fullest extent of that desire and the only thing you would find at the end of it is God himself. Your desires will lead you to God in the worship of him instead of away from him. You won't want to sin. You won't want to replace God because you will see him in the beauty of his goodness in creation and all you will want is him. And so when you, when you experience God's new creation in his kingdom, you will be satisfying your desires in full because you will be chasing God himself. So heaven will be a place of lavish abundance. Second, heaven will be home. Verse 14, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. So notice the repeated theme here. Again, he's using physical imagery to communicate eternal truths about the kingdom of God. And what he's saying here is when you, when you work, you reap the benefits of the work that you put in. Life goes the way it ought to go. So for Israel, when they were exiled, when they built a city, somebody else lived in it. When they planted vineyards, they never got to experience the goodness. All they were experiencing was the toil and the pain and the effort and the work and the anticipation for life to be better one day, but they could experience the pain and the work, but they never experienced the payoff. Somebody else experienced the benefit of their work, but I think what he's saying here is on that day in heaven, life will be the way that it should be, and you will work, but it will be good, and it'll be beautiful, and it'll be like the most fun day you've ever had, the labor that you're doing, and you will be able to consume the benefits of that work. Life will be good and rich and full, and you'll never feel restless or hopeless. Do you ever just feel like life should be something more than it is? 
Have you gotten to the place in life where you've started to just feel restless and wonder what this is for and, and where maybe you, you are dreaming about the future but it's never fully coming true or maybe you've lived long enough to realize that your dreams aren't ever gonna fully come true and even when you get them, it's not what you thought it was gonna be. It's just not the way it was supposed to be. That will be a foreign concept in heaven. Heaven will be satisfying. It will be full. It will be home where everything is the way that it's supposed to be. And so in this life, when you feel discouraged, when you feel like this life isn't what you were wanting, when it hasn't lived up to your dreams for what it was supposed to be, don't give up on God. You're just not home yet. The kingdom of God is coming. Lastly, in heaven, we will have eternal security. Look at verse 15. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted. It's another reason why I think this is ultimately talking about the eternal kingdom of God is because we all are uprooted at some point. We all move, things don't go the way we want them to go. We all die, our lives are all uprooted. But on this day, we will never be uprooted again out of the land that I will give them, says the Lord your God. When you enter the people of God, when you confess Jesus as Lord and you experience what it's like for him to save you and for him to give you his spirit, Ephesians says that once we receive the spirit of God, we're sealed by him. It's a down payment. The Holy Spirit is our down payment of our inheritance. When you're his, you're his. And nothing can ever take you from him. Not even you can take you from him. And so when you experience the kingdom of God, here's what's true, you will never have to worry. You will never have to be anxious. You will never have to anticipate what's going to happen in the future because you are eternally secure in the hands of God forever. When I was a kid, one of my favorite holidays was, was the 4th of July. And we used to go to this lake where they would shoot off fireworks from the barge in the middle of the lake. And we'd get there early to scope out our seats, right? And we'd be sitting there, and then all the people around the lake would be periodically shooting off fireworks. And I remember as a kid, I'd be sitting there like anticipating, wanting the fireworks to come, and I'd see one get shot off from the side of the lake, and I'd be like, was that it? And I would ask my dad, like, was that it? Because I'm, I'm anticipating it, but also hoping that it wasn't it, because it would be lame if that was the whole show, right? <laughs> But I was nervous, like, I don't want to miss this. Was that it? Was that it? And eventually, I had asked enough times, and he finally was just like, Jordan, trust me, you will know. You will know when the fireworks start. And then sure enough, I would always doubt it, but then sure enough, this explosion, like, from the, the bars in the middle of the lake, and would shoot up, and it would be like, wow. And all the other fireworks were sort of down here, kind of at, and this one was like, you're looking straight up. And I think in this life, we so badly are anticipating the kingdom of God. We're so badly anticipating the things being the way they ought to be. That we're kind of looking at God with the, the little pleasures in this life, like, is this it? Is this, is this it? And we're finding out that it's not, and it's disappointing. And I think God in Amos 9 is looking back at you and saying, trust me, you'll know. 
it'll be the most beautiful explosion of the radiant goodness of Jesus Christ that you could possibly imagine for the rest of eternity and you will never get bored and it will always be beautiful and it will always be good. And in him, you can come home. Let me pray. God, thank you for that hope. We don't deserve that hope. We deserve judgment. But thank you that you have offered us a way into that eternal kingdom that'll never fail, that'll never fade, that will just be an expression of of your goodness and and your beauty. And so, so God, we want to come home. We want to be with you. So please, God, we we confess our sin. We don't want to live in our sin. We don't want to be proud and minimize judgment. We want to We want to turn to you and we want to experience the goodness of the life in your kingdom. So God, we as a church confess and come to you and say, Jesus, please save us. Please bring us into that eternal home. We love you. We want to be with you forever. Amen.